Cool, that worked. Um, okay, we might as well kick off. Um, thanks everyone for coming. Friday morning, last day of the conference. Hope you uh, all enjoyed the party. Um, it was rather large. <laughs> um, so this is a session about podcasting. Um, we're going to talk about um, a number of uh, elements of podcasting, everything from generating ideas to going through your production lifecycle, distribution, and, and getting all the way out to measuring and performing analytics to understand your audiences. Um, my name's Alistair. I'm a solutions architect from the AWS team in Sydney. Um, and with me, I've got um, Rob. Rob, do you want to introduce yourself? Thanks. My name's Rob Lowenthal. I'm from Wooshka. And I'm here today to talk about uh, podcasting, the evolution of podcasting, and also my technology platform uh, and how we uh, create audio on demand and host it with Amazon. And yeah, looking forward to this presentation all week. Awesome. Okay, so when we were um, talking about this session, when we were pitching this to our colleagues, the question came up quite a few times about well, why podcasting and, and really why now, why this year, why is this a topic that's interesting? And, and so when we were developing the content and thinking about how to frame this, we thought it would be really interesting to do a bit of a history lesson, to dive into how podcasting has evolved over time and, and where it's headed. So Rob, you work in the industry, so why don't you kick us off with that? Sure, thanks very much. So yeah, podcasting's gained a lot of uh, traction over the last uh, four or five years, and I'm going to tell you about why uh, it's become more and more popular uh, today. I'll also, uh, I'll talk about the evolution of podcasting, and then later I'll talk about how our technology platform, Wooshka, is uh, trying to take advantage of the growing demand for podcasting and audio services. Okay, so who here is a, a regular podcast listener? That's great. Sometimes I speak to advertising agencies and we get a disappointing kind of 20 or 30% of the room uh, put their hands up, but it's, uh, it's a terrific medium. And who's been listening to podcasts since 2004 and who remembers that? process when you had to try and sync everything and download and then you'd, uh, you'd go back the next day and do it all again and it was, a, it was a slow, cumbersome process and of course now we live in a world where it's pretty easy just to stream content straight to your phone. Now that's not a picture of my child, although I've seen that face a lot. Um, we live in a generation now where people want to consume their media on demand. We've seen what Netflix have done to traditional TV. Uh, and people now are used to consuming their media on demand, when they want it, how they want it. Uh, and the same thing is, is right for audio. So people, people want to consume their audio when they want it and how they want it. So you'll see this graph uh, podcasting. We've only really got some data that goes back to 2009. Uh, and this represents the US population over the age of 12 who consume a podcast regularly each week. But the numbers are pretty steady between 2009 and 2013. Uh, you know, it was a sort of a, an audience that was typically interested in technology podcasts. They were a lot of the conversation in audio on demand. But something special happened in 2014. Uh, unfortunately, we couldn't get the image for the Apple, didn't get it approved in time, but you can, uh, you can guess what that is. Apple introduced a non-deletable app on their iPhone. So every single iPhone around the world that was sold came with a non-deletable app, and that made a huge difference to podcast consumption. It still comes pre-installed on every iPhone that's sold around the world. In that same year, we had another big moment. Uh, in addition to the technology change, we also had some great new content. A show called Serial, I'm sure you've all heard about, uh, was... It's a show about a, a murder that happened in 1999, uh, and this lady, Sarah Koenig, one of the producers of This American Life, decided to uh, investigate the case, and it's, uh, it's a great case of investigative journalism. And once again, this got people talking around the water cooler. So you had this great moment, 2014, technological advancement, and also great new content. Then in 2015, we saw the introduction of Apple CarPlay and Android Auto. The difference here is, and I remember quite arrogantly saying when I worked in the radio industry, well, radio is safe until you can find a way to, to read the newspaper when you drive the car. Now, well, that's not the case anymore. You, you, you might not be reading a newspaper, but you can certainly, it's getting easier and easier to listen to a podcast or any form of audio when you drive the car. Now we've got Alexa in the home. 
And in 2016, Apple announced that there were 10 billion downloads of podcasts that year. And we've got some, well, nearly 24% of the adult population in America over the age of 12 consuming a podcast every week for about five hours or so. So these technological advancements and great new content have meant that podcasting has become more and more and more popular. You've got podcasting and audio that's easily consumed in the car and in the home, and we think this evolution will continue and it'll become more popular as, as we go on. Now I'm going to hand it back over to Alistair, and he's going to talk about podcasting infrastructure on AWS uh, and how you can podcast using their technology. Thanks, Rob. So now this is a technical session, so we're going to get a bit nerdy. We're going to talk about podcasting workflows and how you can use different AWS services um, to automate uh, your podcast development and publishing process. So to begin with, um, we're going to frame this through a lifecycle view. So every, every good podcast, every good creative endeavor really starts with planning. If, if you don't have a plan, when you sit down in front of the microphone, what are you going to say? It, it suddenly will become quite awkward. So planning a podcast, what are some of the key elements that make up a really great podcast? We picked five things that we think really are consistent across all of the great podcasts um, that are out there. To begin with, you need to do your homework. You need to really understand your topic. It might be a, uh, you know, a technical domain. It might be um, some kind of social thing. You need to understand your audience and your topic and, and have some kind of agenda as to um, where you're going to take people on a journey over multiple episodes. Then you need to think about how you're going to communicate that. So you might have your domain of knowledge, but now how are you going to frame this? You're going to use an interview format? Are you going to do a more a informal chat kind of structure? Are you going to present short snippets? Or are you going to do like hour-long episodes? Something that often gets overlooked is cover art. So when you actually go and publish your podcast into um, the iTunes store, for example, people are going to find it by the cover art. So you need to have something engaging, something zippy, um, that people will, will remember and hang off. And then really tying all of these things together is this overarching idea of a theme. Something consistent that, that means people will come back time and time again. And people are going to come back time and time again if you post consistently. So a really important thing with podcasts that I really like is some of my favorite podcasts get published, for example, on a Friday every week. So I know that when I get up in the morning, I can refresh my app and the latest episode is there. It's ready for my commute to work. That idea of consistency is how you build an audience. If you're publishing at essentially fairly random times, people aren't going to necessarily know when to come back. If you have that regular cadence and that all ties into the homework that you did up front, then you get, you're going to get really great outcomes and you're going to build your audience engagement. Now, when we think about the AWS ecosystem, a tool that could be really useful in this space is Amazon WorkDocs. So when we developed this presentation, um, all of the work was done using WorkDocs. This allows us to do things like put feedback in, put comments in, have version control, and collaborate. Well, all of these um, different aspects of making a great podcast require you to record this information somewhere to collaborate, to iterate. And WorkDocs is a great platform for that. You could also use solutions from partners, things like Trello. Um, is a great solution just for organizing amongst you and your colleagues so you can get the best possible result. Now, moving on from planning, we've got our plan. We understand what we're, we're actually going to um, talk about. Now, how do we actually go and do that? Well, most people, when they get started with podcasting, will record on their laptop, for example. If you're in the Apple ecosystem, you might use GarageBand. If you're in the Windows or Linux ecosystem, you can use a tool like uh, Audacity, an open source um, audio workstation. But think about using Amazon Workspaces. So Workspaces, if you're not familiar with it, is a virtual desktop in the cloud. And Workspaces supports audio in and out. So you can actually record your podcast directly in the cloud. But more practically, you might actually think about using Workspaces as an editing station. So a good podcast doesn't only have speech in it. It has other things, sound effects, um, a theme, um, and often different segments that have been cut together from different sources over time. So you can do that on your laptop, but you can use the power of workspaces because you can get very powerful, um, very powerful desktops with the service to make that editing process really easy. But you can also access that editor using different devices, using an iPad. No, you know, no matter where you are, you can get in and use workspaces uh, to achieve um, your editing goals. Okay, now this is where we're going to 
get, get a bit more nerdy and get into some detailed architectures, the publishing um, lifespan. So we've produced our podcast, now we want, we want it to go to the world. Well, how do we get started with that? Well, what falls out of that podcast is an audio file, obviously. So we have an MP3 or an MP4 file. It doesn't seem to be a hard and fast rule as to which format is the right format. Um, I, I observe most of the podcasts I listen to are in MP3s, but MP4 is a completely valid format as well. But then when people are looking for our podcast, we need a way to provide metadata, our title, our episodes, show dates, all this kind of information. And we do this using an RSS feed. And we'll talk a bit more about that as we move through the session. I already mentioned cover art, so artwork is important here as well. So we need cover art. You can also embed images within your podcast. So you can use um, ID3 version 2 tags to actually embed images within that, and some applications will then show that as the listener is moving through the podcast, which can help with engagement. And then finally, something that's also um, not always thought about up front is this idea of show notes. So often in a podcast, you'll mention things, and you want to provide a landing page for people to come back where they can find those references, find links to other things you've talked about, and potentially even have a discussion forum so that you can engage directly with your audience. So a great platform for this for getting started is LightSail. So at Amazon, we really like the idea of experimentation. We think that you should try things um, and then learn and iterate. And LightSail is a great platform for this if you're getting started with podcasting. To begin with, with LightSail, you, um, you have bundled plans. So you don't have to think about um, sizing all of your compute, storage, and networking components individually. It gives you a very simple model um, to get started from as low as $5 a month. But those, pl those plans come with images that have got pre-built content management solutions, things like WordPress, Drupal, and Joomla. And all of these CMSs have podcasting extensions available in their marketplaces. So you can enable these and get started straight away. This will help you to generate that RSS feed that I briefly mentioned before um, and allow you to start publishing really, really quickly without having to dive into the code. I already mentioned the pricing is low and predictable. And in particularly, um, this is really helpful around network bandwidth, around data transfer. So with uh, LightSail, you get bundled data transfer included in your monthly plan. So that means if your podcast goes viral, if it takes off and you suddenly, your experiment's a massive success, you've got runway because all of your, your data transfers are included within the LightSail monthly cost. And finally, similar to the Workspaces idea, you can manage and operate your LightSail um, instances directly from the console. You can log into them, you can get to the terminal from a browser. It's a very easy experience to get started. So if you're traveling the world with just an iPad, you can still manage it um, through the console. But then what if you do go viral? What if your podcast takes off? Your idea is awesome, you've done all the prep, you're suddenly, you're getting lots and lots of listeners, lots of engagement. This is a great problem to have, right? This is, this is where a lot of people want to be. But it presents some challenges. So that RSS feed that I spoke about, this is just a simple text file, small. But every time someone subscribes to your podcast in an application, many podcast apps will then regularly poll that RSS feed looking for updates. Typically, it's about once an hour, depending on the app, that they'll poll your RSS feed. If you've got 100 listeners, that's... You know, it's, it's nothing for any server to handle. But as you scale, if you're getting into the thousands and thousands of listeners, suddenly this starts to present a challenge if all of these clients are out there constantly polling your RSS file. Now, I mentioned before the idea of publishing on a regular schedule. This has a side effect. If you publish on a Friday, many podcast applications will update the RSS feed and then proactively download the media so that when you're traveling, if you're on the train and you lose network connectivity, it doesn't drop out. This is a great feature, but it also means that your Friday morning data transfer is going to be a massive spike, and then you'll have a, a lower level for the rest of the week. So you need to think about how you can support that, and you don't necessarily want to size for peak for that kind of workload. And then finally, thinking about measuring and reporting. So your podcast has taken off. Maybe now you want to think about selling advertisements. You want to start understanding your audience reach, who's listening, you need to start thinking about how I can gather reports on all this data. If I'm starting with just raw logs, it's, it's, a bit, it's a bit noisy. It's not necessarily easy to find the information that you want. So how do we solve these challenges? We start to introduce Amazon S3 and CloudFront to distribute and host our media. So S3, low-cost, scalable storage, perfect for storing media files. Um, this service gives you 11 nines of durability, um, allows you to do things like replicating your data um, 
and, and we'll do this at very low cost. CloudFront then gives you global distribution. There are 101 pops, I think. Hopefully that number's still accurate. It changes quite regularly. Now, podcasting, if you follow Apple's podcasting standards, they require that you distribute your content using HTTPS. So using CloudFront, you can leverage Amazon Certificate Manager to generate um, SSL certificates for your website. You can integrate these with CloudFront very, very easily. And then you can tick that box. You've got HTTPS done, and all the management's taken care of by ACM. Another requirement from Apple is that your web server supports byte range requests. CloudFront and S3 have got you covered in this area. And then if you want to think about moving into things like private content, exclusive content for paid listeners, well, you can leverage features like signed URLs, which allow you to generate one-time usage URLs for an individual user. You can build this using RSDKs very easily in your CMS. And then I mentioned before, logging and metrics, understanding your audience. Well, CloudFront gives you a ton of reports out of the box, just there included. And this can really help you to start to understand your reach, your distribution, and the effectiveness of your podcast. So how do we optimize our delivery with CloudFront? Well, CloudFront's a caching um, service. It will cache your content close to your listeners. But we want to help CloudFront do the best job possible. So we have two key files that listeners are going to be accessing. We have the MP3 file, the audio file that is larger, you know, tens of megabytes typically. And we have the RSS file that's very, very small. The MP3 file doesn't update often. You don't tend to overwrite an existing podcast. But that RSS feed will update all the time. So you want to have different caching settings with CloudFront. And you can do this using the cache control header. So this is an HTTP header. And if you set it to a large number, CloudFront will try to cache your content for as long as possible. It's essentially a value in seconds, this max age value. If you set it to a low number, CloudFront will periodically refresh after that period um, to check your content when a user requests for it in the future. So what you would typically do is set large values for your MP3 file, because it's not changing very often, but lower values, something like 300 seconds for the RSS feed, which allows you to update that feed and have your users get the latest version of it um, quickly. Now, by doing this, you take a massive load off your origin server. So this helps you scale. It helps you reach an audience without any disappointment of, of failed downloads or servers being overloaded. You can also control these settings within CloudFront itself with these maximum and minimum TTL settings that you can see here at the bottom of the slide. But I recommend you use it at the origin instead, as I've shown above, which you can also set in S3 as object metadata. The reason I suggest that is when you set in CloudFront directly, CloudFront will follow those headers, but those headers will not be passed on to any downstream clients. So say you have um, listeners that are on a corporate network and everything goes through a proxy. Well, that proxy will respect the header at the top, because it comes through with the request. In the lowercase, CloudFront's going to respect it, but the proxy downstream's not going to cache the content. So next, thinking about understanding our audience. You might want to track your audience. You might want to understand who's actually requesting content. So one thing you can do is you can use things like query strings in your RSS feed to identify an individual user. But CloudFront will remove these by default when it forwards a request to your origin. So you lose this information and thus it doesn't show up in your, your metrics or your reporting. So if you whitelist a specific query string, say a user ID or a country code or something that you embed within your um, RSS feed, that will come through to your origin. It will reduce your cache effectiveness, but it, the art is in choosing the right query strings and only whitelisting those that you need to come through. This will then mean that you can get much more detailed reporting. You can extract much more information from your origin server um, and understand your audience better. And then back to our problem of, of being successful, the great problem to have. Well, if your podcast really takes off or you're hosting a lot of media on the platform, think about reserve capacity pricing. So much like you would buy reserved instances for EC2 um, when you've got steady, stable workloads, at scale, the CloudFront team are able to do reserve capacity pricing. So if you have a, a known um, amount of traffic that you're going to do over a given point of time, reach out to your AWS account team and have a chat about reserve capacity pricing. So let's take a look at that podcast structure and let's, let's double click on the RSS feed. Let's dive a bit deeper into that. So RSS, this is a standard that's been with us since 2003. There aren't many standards in our industry that have been in place and stable for that long. It's an XML-based format. 
which means it's easy to work with um, using applications, using SDKs. But thankfully, this format might be quite old, but it's open to extensions. So when we're talking about podcasts, the key extension that you need to think about with the RSS feed is the iTunes extensions, because these are specific tags that are picked up um, by the iTunes store and are also reflected in many other podcasting applications. So RSS looks a bit like this. Um, you might have to squint um, to see all of the text. But fundamentally, we're talking about an XML document. It defines a whole bunch of attributes. So at the high level, we have a channel. So this is your podcast. And this is the idea of, this is my title of my podcast, the key metadata, who the hosts are, um, what categories it should fit into in the iTunes store, for example. This is all expressed um, in this section of your RSS feed. This is typically something that's relatively slow moving. You don't tend to change this information too much. But the area that you might update quite frequently is the episode section. So the episode section outlines each individual episode within your podcast. And this is where you would define, you put in the description of that episode, who the guests might be, for example, the publishing date, um, and ultimately a link to the file name. Now, because this is easy to publish as, with code, you can do some really interesting things manipulating RSS feeds. So let's dive into a few architectures. So the following is an architecture that one of my colleagues, um, Simon, who hosts the AWS podcast, which if you haven't listened to it, you should check it out. This is his architecture that he uses for publishing his podcasts when he's not around. So Simon will come to an event like this and interview lots of interesting people. This gives him a whole bunch of content that he can use to publish. Now, often it's easy if, you, if you're doing a podcast of a format like the AWS podcast to produce episodes in a batch, to do two or three of them at once, particularly if you're doing interviews. But then you don't want to have to sit there at Friday, on Friday morning and push the publish button. You, know, you might need to go to a meeting. You might be traveling. So it would be great if you could automate the publishing process to just happen at a fixed point in time. Well, the way you can do this is you can use a service like DynamoDB to store all the metadata about your podcast episodes. You store this as, say, a JSON document. And in that document, you might include an on-air timestamp like I've shown here on the slide. You could also use this as, say, the sort key within your DynamoDB table, making it easy for you to query the table and find episodes that need to be published. Now, the way we actually publish those episodes is we use a scheduled Lambda function. So we use a CloudWatch event that fires every hour that fires a Lambda function. This Lambda function is very, very simple. All it does is it looks at the DynamoDB table and sees if it can find any podcasts that haven't been published yet. So has the timestamp just rolled over in the last hour? OK, it has. Cool, well, now we need to render out an updated RSS feed. We just pull in all the metadata that's relevant for that RSS feed, and we push it out to our S3 bucket, which is ultimately hosting our RSS feed. Then our clients will poll periodically, and they'll, they'll spot the update. They'll pull it through CloudFront, which will cache it on the way in, and we're good to go. We've now got an automated publishing pipeline. Um, our podcasts go out on time all the time. And it's powered by Lambda, so it's a serverless architecture using very, very, very few seconds of compute over the month to actually um, deliver this outcome. Now, another thing that um, often comes up when talking about podcasts and media workloads in general is the idea of, well, how do I embed advertisements within my material? Um, you want your advertisements to be in a place where they're relevant, obviously, to the listeners, but you don't want it to be... Well, you want it to be embedded within the audio file so it doesn't show up as, say, a separate episode within your podcast feed. So that means we have to render this into our actual audio file. We need to actually cut this in. Now, that's practical to be done during your, your content production phase, but then you're going to have ads that are long-lived. Those ads will stay there forever, as long as that MP3 file is there, unless you go back and manually edit it. If you have a global audience, you may be putting ads in that are not relevant to, say, your German listeners when you're selling for an American vendor or an Australian vendor. So it would be interesting if you could actually build a pipeline that automatically renders out ads for different markets, for different users, or is able to reinsert ads at a later date automatically without you having to go back and do that editing process. So here's how you could think about doing that. So I mentioned these before. Um, the MP3 format supports chapter markers as part of the ID3 version 2 extension. So as you're editing your podcast, you could place chapter markers in the file. This is just metadata that's embedded in the MP3 structure. And you could use these to identify where the ad insertion points are. We then, as you can see on the slide down the bottom, we have our advertisements um, sitting around. Well, we can now programmatically cut 
our source media at the edit points, and then insert the advertisements there, rendering out a new flat file. We repeat this for each variation. So you can automate this as a loop. You know, you might have a, a German version, you might have an American version, you might have an Australian version of this process with different ads inserted. Now, probably a good practice here would be to think about having those ads all be a standardized length. This really helps with your podcast always being the same length. But, you know, you can experiment with this and see what works for you. Now, how you could do this is to make this, um, you could build a serverless architecture to do this and use API Gateway to drive it. So say we finish recording our podcast, we're done, we've done all of our finishing, we've put our chapter markers in, we publish it to our S3 bucket, but we're not ready to go live with it yet. Well, you might stand up an API with API Gateway um, to trigger the workflow to start. So you, you hit your API, and that would fire a Lambda function, and that Lambda function's role is to prepare a stitching job. So what it needs to do is it needs to understand my source media, so okay, here's the file name of the input master clip, and it needs some metadata about what ads to insert. And once again, you might use DynamoDB as a platform to store this information. This is a, a great place to store all the metadata, the times, the markets, the audience for those ads, the number of insertions you want to do, for example. So your Lambda function might query DynamoDB, implement all that business logic in Lambda, and then you can prepare a job and use Elastic Transcoder to do this stitching task. So you send this as a, as a transcode job to Elastic Transcoder. And what Elastic Transcoder will do is it will pull in all the raw media files, your different MP3s for your ads and your master file, and it will stitch them together for you. It will re-encode the content, so you want your source content to be high quality, but um, one, one additional digital generation usually sounds, sounds fine if you've got good quality masters. At the end of the, the process, Elastic Transcoder will write this out to an output bucket, so you're now good to add this to your RSS feed and publish it. You can hook up things like uh, SNS, a notification service, to that output bucket so that you can get notifications of when this is completed and tie this all up together into a workflow. You could use something like step functions um, to actually orchestrate this whole process from publish um, through to delivery. So how do you find those chapter markers? Well, here's some sample code um, using an open source library called MP3 Parser. What it basically does is it walks and finds all of the ID3 tags in the MP3 file by loading the MP3 into a buffer. It looks for the tags that have the chap header, which is the actual header for that, that particular um, tag. And then it just does a verification that the start time and the end time are in the right order. Sometimes I've, when I've looked at a few podcasts, I've found some stray chapter markers that don't have an end time, for example. And so it's just a matter of, of doing a sanity check. Now, once we've got our start and finish times of where all of our chapters are. We now know where our ad insertion points are. So we can then go and generate an elastic transcoder job, which looks a bit like this. So a transcoder job is just a JSON document, and you, in one section you specify inputs. You can specify the same input file over and over again. So what you can see in this slide here is, in the first um, stanza, I've got my, my first input, my, my program material. Then I have my um, advertisement. And when I put in my first, my source material, I specify the duration of that source material, the start time offset and the duration. Then I just insert my ad, which is clean, topped, and tailed. And then I go back to my source media with the next start time, which I've extracted using these chapter markers. So I submit this as a job, and a few seconds later, Elastic Transcoder will um, give me a finished, polished audio file. Okay, so now we actually have custom audio. We've now actually gone and generated like audio that's appropriate for different audiences. You know, we've got different ads. We might ha it, you could even use that for gluing segments together. So how do we actually deliver that? Well, this is an interesting idea of using um, Lambda at the Edge um, to mask um, the media that an actual individual user is getting. So we might put that MP3 file into our RSS feed, but then we might want to serve different content to the German users versus the Australians. So the way we can do that is we can embed a query string in our RSS feed, so a user ID, a country code, something like that. And when that comes through CloudFront, we can use um, a Lambda at Edge origin request function. So when CloudFront needs to pull the media from the origin because it doesn't have it in its cache, it will call this Lambda function. That Lambda function can look up in DynamoDB and say, hey, I've got the query string, what's the right media file for this, this user? I know the URI, I know their query string value, what's the right media file for them? 
it can then rewrite the request and it can send that to S3 or to your own origin. And then that media file will come back and it'll hit the CloudFront cache and be sent back to the end user. So the user is essentially none the wiser. We've now built, we've used a, a fairly um, common pattern with Lambda at the edge to transparently rewrite requests um, based on a tag like, like a query string. Now, some uh, things that are important to note here. So here's some sample code of doing this. Um, very, very simple Lambda function once again, connecting to DynamoDB, looking up the value, and then um, updating the URI. So this is an origin request function, as I mentioned, that gets executed when there's a cache miss. But what's really interesting is you need to be aware of inter-region calls. So CloudFront has edge locations all around the world. And we execute Lambda at the edge as close to the user as we can. So then where's my DynamoDB table supposed to be? So if the user's in Sydney, and I've got the DynamoDB table in Northern Virginia, suddenly I've added a couple of hundred milliseconds to my Lambda function execution time because I now have to reach out cross-region to pull that metadata down. So you could use the, new, uh, the newly announced DynamoDB replication feature that um, got announced the other day to do this, or you could simply use things like DynamoDB streams to handle replication yourself. When you push something to a master table in, say, Northern Virginia, consume the stream and push it to DynamoDB in each other region. Another thing that I discovered in, uh, in building out a proof of concept of this um, was when you have a query string come through and you've got an S3 origin, um, you need to strip that query string before you forward the request onto S3. Otherwise, the signing process um, actually turned out to fail. So you can see the second um, or the third last line there, I think I've explicitly deleted the query string before I forward it through. So this just shows a few different things you can do with Lambda at the Edge in terms of manipulating requests. Um, and uh, it ultimately then allows you uh, to hide the actual source of the content uh, from your end user. Okay, so we've gone through our publishing flow. Now we're at, we're at the end of the life cycle. We're, we're measuring, we need to understand um, what's going on. And like any good life cycle, we need to use those measurements to inform our future plans. We want this to be a full circle process. We don't wanna just measure and then not change what we're doing. We wanna learn, we wanna iterate, we wanna get better at this. So measuring your content's success and how you're engaging with your audience. Well, CloudFront gives you a number of reports out of the box. So you can understand things like your audience reach. You can understand your most popular objects. You can see things like your top referrers. So where are, where are people coming from that are finding your content? And you can also understand your cache performance, which becomes quite, quite useful over time. You, you really want to optimize that. It gives the users the best experience if you're getting a high hit rate. But there's some material that CloudFront doesn't give you out of the box. So, while CloudFront will tell you your audience reach at a distribution level, it won't tell you per podcast what your reach is. You might have some, some episodes being, you know, getting a higher level of engagement in particular markets than others. And that can be really useful. That helps you with advertising, for example. It doesn't really give you data about your unique listeners over time as well. So typically with podcasting, you'll want to report on the growth, not only of the number of downloads, but who are the uniques? How many people are actually listening to my podcast? And likewise, for referrers, you probably want to track some of this information over time. But you have the power to generate this stuff. So podcast analytics is, is like many other web server analytics at the end of the day. We have lots of data sources in, in AWS that you can use to find this information. CloudFront emits detailed access logs, which you can um, have delivered to S3, and then you can aggregate together. If you're using an EC2-based platform, you can obviously pull your web server logs. You can push that data through. If you're using S3, S3 produces logs both going to CloudTrail or going to S3 itself. All of these things can become data sources that you might um, ultimately host in a data lake which you'd sit on S3. Now, before you actually build reports, you probably want to clean up that data. So I've found in looking at um, real-world access logs for podcasts, different applications interact with your RSS feed in different ways. They, they sometimes attach funny headers, they put query strings on things that don't need to be there, they miss things. They're, you end up with web server logs that actually have different URIs and, and different parameters depending on different applications and sometimes even different versions. So you can use a tool like Elastic MapReduce or now even um, AWS Glue to clean up those logs, to get them into a normalized format that makes it really easy to report. And ultimately you wanna write that cleaned up data back into S3. So you wanna keep your raw data and write out your cleaned up data. You can then ingest that to a platform like Redshift, which if you've got a lot of logs will make it really easy to report. 
But you can also connect Amazon QuickSight directly to S3 and have QuickSight give you visual dashboarding and, and generate the reports that you're really after. Now, another tool that you can use across this whole lifecycle is, is Amazon Athena. So Athena lets you do ad hoc querying on your data that's stored in S3. You don't need to run a, an EMR cluster. So you can use Athena to query that data in its raw form, perform some of the ETLs, but you can also use it to, to query your cleaned up data um, and get results really quickly and only pay for the queries that you're actually executing. You can plug Athena, well finally, you can plug Athena into QuickSight as well to get your reporting um, visually done on a per query basis. So analytics is, is something that you're probably gonna want to build and customize for your own usages. As I've given you a few ideas about some specific reports. Um, but Rob, we were talking about, uh, when we were planning this podcast, asking you about the history of, of Wooshka, and, and really you were saying that analytics was one of the key problems you were looking to solve. Yeah, absolutely it was. Um, when I got into this business, uh, look, I used to run a large radio network in Australia, and back in about 2012, I remember that podcasting started to take off for us, and our listeners wanted to consume the content on demand. So we obviously were very interested in the analytics, but um, I would go to my, the digital manager at the time and say, oh, how did we perform last month? And his answer would be in terabytes. Uh, he would say, oh, we did uh, 10 terabytes last month. And, you know, that's, we were more interested in how many humans actually listened to the content. So when I left that business, I decided to build a technology platform that would at least handle that problem around giving accurate uh, statistics to podcasters um, and reliable analytics. And we've come a long way now with analytics. Uh, the IAB just introduced some standards around what a user actually is and what a download means in the podcasting landscape. There was also another motivation when I uh, started this business. I remember thinking that a lot of the hosts for the radio shows would actually sit in the studio and read the newspaper uh, out loud live on air. And I thought, well, in Australia, there's about $1.2 billion worth of ad revenue in the uh, radio industry. And there's about, I think it's $40 billion globally. And I thought, well, no newspapers are getting any of that revenue, but their content's used extensively uh, in the production of radio shows. So. I went to our local newspaper in Sydney, the Daily Telegraph, and said, why don't you uh, compete with radio? You know, this, this thing called the internet, it's been around for a while, um, and podcasting's been around since 2004, and you should be doing that yourself. So my motivation originally was around trying to provide reliable analytics and getting newspaper companies into this medium and seeing if we could find an advantage there that hadn't already been exploited. Um, so we started building this platform oh, about 18 months ago, Oh, sorry, we launched 18 months ago. We started building two years ago. Uh, and we now provide podcasters with an end-to-end -end audio on-demand solution. I'll go through each of the capabilities of the platform. Uh, we provide hosting to podcasters, as you'd expect. We provide them with uh, amplification, so distribution. You can distribute. We have tools to distribute to third-party applications like iTunes, uh, to embeddable players on websites and also to social media feeds. We also allow podcasters to use our tools to stitch in dynamic ads. We have recently released uh, a new capture editing facility so that podcasters who want to just use one application to do all the work can just jump into Wooshka, have their show recorded live in here, and use our editor to um, produce a podcast, stitch in content, uh, and share it out to the normal channels. Uh, in two weeks, we released this product. It's called Live. It allows podcasters to generate an embeddable player that can be played uh, live on a website. So that newspaper I was talking about, the Daily Telegraph, will be the first to use this feature uh, in two weeks. And it's finally the, this, this dream that I had about them competing with radio stations is becoming more real because now it won't just be in an on-demand format. It'll also be uh, through in a live format. And back in May, we started using Amazon's Poly feature to generate audio from text. So when I started working with a lot of the newspapers, I realized that they didn't actually have the entertainment value that radio people uh, were able to put into audio content. And I remember sitting back thinking, well, maybe we'd be better off just getting robots to read this stuff. And so we, we, we actually have got robots reading the newspapers now for those guys. And I'll show you some examples later on. Here's a little demo, 30-second uh, video about how Wooshka Waves works. 
uh, and this will be available over the next couple of weeks. That, that's actually a useful feature for radio stations as well because they're recording in a live environment. At the moment, they go to another application to get the audio that's been stored somewhere. Then they've got to open up something like GarageBand, edit it, do their work. Then they upload it into a podcast host and they share the content. What we're trying to do is reduce that friction so that they can just use one application like Wooshka to um, get their content out really quick after the show. Uh, and as I said earlier, we're introducing live streaming with the Daily Telegraph, uh, and we're using AWS's Media Store, which was something that was announced a couple of days ago. And that's going to make that whole process a lot more smooth. So I did mention that we've also been using Amazon's Polly and using text to generate voice in up to 52 accents and 25 languages. Uh, here's another demonstration video about how this is working for our media partners in Australia. Publishers and companies using the Wooshka platform can now generate an audio news bulletin in real time, combining the top stories of the day into a single podcast. So in that example, we, with the Australian newspaper, we uh, look at their news RSS feed, or they'll type it into our, our product, uh, and it generates, uh, it looks for the top 10 stories of the day. We grab the first paragraph from each story, stitch it together, and generate a podcast or an MP3 file that can be shared via an embedded player or it can easily just be uploaded as a podcast as well. Uh, we've used the same technology and the same approach for a company called Telstra, a telecommunications company in Australia. They wanted to generate live score uh, audio for uh, people who listen to uh, people who use Google Home and, and Alexa as well. So we use that technology to grab data from score data uh, and generate the audio when the request is made through Alexa. And here's, here's an example. When the teams aren't playing and there's no score, we generate an auto message about uh, what position on the leaderboard your team is and some basic information about them. Sydney Swans played Carlton in round 23 at SCG. Swans won 21 goals, 12, 138 to 8 goals, 9, 57. So we're really excited about this technology because we think that there's a lot of different use cases where people want to generate audio, but it's not always for entertainment purposes. Quite often, audio can be used for educational or inspirational or uh, you know, call to action. There are so many different reasons why you want to use audio that don't just involve you know, talking about your favorite car or the kind of hobbyist style of podcast that we've become used to. Uh, and we're trying to build a technology application that caters for everyone who's interested in audio. I think with the um, introduction of you know, the connected home and the connected car devices, it just means that audio is going to be a bigger part in our daily lives. And, and by using Polly and stitching that together with human-generated content, uh, it gives us just more a broader reach for audio. I'm going to hand it back now to Alistair, and I'll finish off in about 10 minutes. So let's take a look at some of the code that sits behind that uh, sports score use case. So. This is some of the code that Wooshka is using um, to generate those sports scores. And it shows a couple of interesting features around working with Polly and how you can programmatically generate audio. So in the, the context of sports scores, one of the interesting um, problem spaces is a lot of stadiums, particularly in Australia, have um, three-letter acronyms as part of their, their names. And Polly sometimes needs to be taught how to say those the right way, in a familiar way. So you can see in the code at the top, um, some customization of the way Polly is actually speaking. It changes the pace um, for the word AFL, or for the frames AFL, um, and it changes the way MCG is pronounced um, to get it right. So this shows you how you can customize Polly for domain-specific um, use cases um, with very minimal code. The other thing that's interesting in this code is the block in the middle, um, which is to be aware of the idea that when you're working with Polly, the maximum number of characters one request will process is 1,500. So 
if you're reading out long-form material with Polly, what you need to do is think about catching those boundaries, those word boundaries, um, at around about 1,499 characters, as shown here. And then if you have longer text, you're going to have to do multiple requests and then do a stitching operation um, to glue them together. So in this case, I'm pretty lucky with sports scores. They tend to be short and sharp. But it's something to watch out for if you're, if you're starting to use this to, for example, read whole news articles. Now, this is how the Wushka customized audio architecture works. So Wushka is built on top of an Elastic Beanstalk uh, PHP stack. Um, this allows their developers to focus on their code, um, and the infrastructure management gets taken care of by the platform. They use a similar pattern to um, the one I mentioned earlier around the idea of tracking users through using query strings and the like. So these come through CloudFront and get into their application. They're then able to check listener preferences um, from a, a backing relational database and use this to customize the response in the RSS feed um, for the user. They also can use the cache control header um, at their origin, just in their web server configuration um, in PHP, to manage the CloudFront cache um, for each individual asset that gets returned. Now, when it comes to rendering feeds, this is what it looks like in PHP, so a different language example. Um, this shows off uh, some of the, the simplicity. Essentially, the RSS tags are well-defined, so these are well-defined within, uh, within a development environment. But you can see down the bottom um, some of the um, iTunes tags, so things like the, uh, the subtitle specification are things that are unique to the iTunes extensions. And these are added um, very simply by uh, using a, a programming pattern like this, using um, appending of custom elements. When we get into the items, um, we have some other elements that are, are important. One of the items that's, that's quite useful is the, um, the GUID, the GUID, um, at the bottom here. So in podcasting standards, the GUID is expected to be consistent for the same audio file. So you might put the same podcast, the same episode, into two different feeds. Um, you should use the same GUID in that context. If you change the GUID, the application should think that your feed has changed or your, your episode has changed and therefore try to re-download it again. So that's a, that's a value that should be respected by most podcasting applications to indicate that something's changed. So this work, this is all very simple from a, a programming perspective. Um, and we've talked a bit in this talk about the idea that RSS is a very flexible format. It's very easy to manipulate. And it opens up some opportunities to do um, customized audio, to do things that are personalized to the individual listener. And so, Rob, to wrap up, um, you've had a number of, you know, you've built a number of things in this space, and you had an example you wanted to share. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. So, yeah, we're always trying to find new ways to innovate with audio because we see this great trend in, well, like I said before, connected homes, connected cars, and audio has so much application because it's so convenient. You know, you don't have to stop what you're doing and look down at a screen to consume audio. It's convenient because you can drive a car, you can go for a walk. Uh, you can go to the gym and listen to audio. And we think that's probably why audio has been so resilient over the years. And you know, nothing's killed radio yet, because you can do it while you're doing other things, unlike TV media and other forms. So we keep thinking about how can we do something new with audio uh, and still uh, be excited by the fact that it's convenient and the new technology. And there seems to be a, a lot of a, a big move towards personalization these days. And there's certainly no reason why audio can't be more personalized. And I still get irritated when I listen to the radio and I listen to traffic reports um, about a road that I'm never going to travel on, that I've never heard of before. I just sort of feel like they're sort of wasting my time. And in this day and age, you should be able to at least get a personalized traffic report. So we've been working on a product called MyCast, which will be released quite soon. Um, it allows you to have a personalized feed yourself that you can consume through a third-party application or an embedded player or, or anywhere else. And you can actually set it up yourself so that the kind of, kind of content that you want will be delivered to you on a regular basis. So in this example here, we've got maybe a quote, some weather, the traffic. We know where you live. We know where you work. So we'll be able to give you a traffic report that says, today it's 46 minutes. Avoid the Pacific Highway, for example. Uh, and then we can actually stitch in your favorite podcast from that podcast feed as well. Uh, because we're, uh, we've got a room full of developers, we thought we'd actually build another feature for you today. So we've replaced the music with Jira tickets. So uh, 
it's a bit sadistic if you want to drive to work and listen to your bugs from last night or some, <laughs> some ticket you haven't finished. Um, but hey, I'm not judging. Uh, so we'll play you a little demonstration about how this works. Um, the application for it is not really just for individuals. Rather, we, we keep thinking it's, it's for large companies. Um, I was talking to like Dell, for example. They've got 130,000 employees globally. They could actually generate a personalized podcast each week for each employee, um, which might include maybe the CEO's message in a, using text-to-voice. Uh, you could have other content that they're interested in, um, and you could even stitch in their favorite podcasts. And they get that every Friday afternoon when they go home from work. Or it could be used in shopping centers where you want to stitch in advertising content that's specific to each different shop. Uh, I'll play you a little sample now about how it might sound. But remember, it's the combination of both human content uh, and uh, robot kind of content. Um, and we think that that's going to be a real powerful combination. You know, you always hear that story about Kasparov being beaten by the robot and AI is going to rule the world one day. But what people always fail to tell you is that the combination of a human and a robot is far powerful, much more powerful than just the robot alone. And we think the same kind of theory applies with audio. When you've got sort of this automated content combined with your favorite and entertaining content, and typically the automated content will be personalized and relevant to you, we think that combination is going to be powerful. And hope, we hope that that's going to change the way that people consume audio in the future. And I'll play you a quick example. Good morning, Robert. Charlie Munger always says, I just want to know where I'm going to die, so I can avoid that place. Wise words. Today should be sunny for you, around 25 degrees Celsius with a cooler evening at 15 degrees and your journey to work should take around 26 minutes. Yesterday, you didn't complete two JIRA tickets assigned to you, and oh, overnight three JIRA tickets have been assigned to you within the project bugs from two contributors. Overall, there are six tickets that are due this week across three projects. And now, the latest episode of the podcast, Open the Pod Bay Doors. Okay, that's, that's a demonstration of the kind of content that we can pull together. And over time, we'll just increase and expand the number of different data points that we can grab information from uh, to generate these unique feeds for individuals. But to sort of sum things up, we are very excited at the moment about audio because even though it's had one of the slowest evolutions in technology history, if you talk about 2003 when the standard started, um, it, it's starting to really come of age now because it's convenience, because we like consuming media on demand, uh, and because of the te technological advancements and great content that's in the market for audio now, we think it's just going to continue to be more and more a part of your, your daily lives. And, you know, you can consume this kind of content in Alexa, or in your house, or in your car, or at work through your favourite podcast player. So, um, yeah, that sums everything up. Uh, we're all quite excited about the evolution of audio, and, and hopefully you are too. Thanks very much for coming today, and, I, and I'll just let Alistair have the last word. Yeah, thanks, Rob. Um, and yeah, I just wanted to reiterate, thank you, thank you for making the time on the Friday morning. Um, hope you enjoyed it. We'll be here now for the next, I don't know, 10 minutes or so, if anyone has any questions. Um, and uh, yeah, enjoy the rest of the event, whatever's left of it. Thank you.